Hello, lovely. It's Shauna Lee, and welcome back to the Soul Frequency Show podcast, where we're stepping into the light and raising our frequency together. Each week, we get to return to this sacred space to have conversations about the things we all experience in life, love, health, and career. A space where we, as spiritual beings, having this human experience, can amplify our gifts and remember our truth. The title of this episode is Highly Sensitive Person. I've really been wanting to have a conversation about being highly sensitive as I know that so many of you would probably say, I'm a sensitive person. I identify as being sensitive. And I became curious about the term highly sensitive because I wanted to understand myself better because I'm sensitive and also I live in a household full of other sensitive beings. And I wanted to kind of look at what does science say about sensitivity and understand the fundamental studies that have been done about sensitivity. Like, is it hereditary? Um, what exactly causes somebody to have sensitivity? Um, how do we know that we're a highly sensitive person? Are there certain criteria or questions we can answer to identify as a highly sensitive person? So I was thrilled when Dr. Bianca Acevedo agreed to come on the show and join me. And she is a research scientist in the Department of Psychology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Studies, she studies the science of love, sensory processing sensitivity, and mind-body practices. She conducted the first neuroimaging studies of long-term romantic love and was the recipient of the 2012 International Women in Science Award. She has published several widely recognized articles on the science of love and being a highly sensitive person, which those articles have appeared in media outlets around the globe. And she is also the developer of LoveSmart, the app. With no further ado, Dr. Bianca Acevedo. Well, welcome to the show. We are so happy you're here with us and looking forward to learning more about being highly sensitive. It's my pleasure to be here. Wonderful. Um, so I want to really dive into the term highly sensitive. I know there's a lot of people that listen to the show that identify as highly sensitive, and I'm very interested in the work that you've done and are doing. Um, and before we get into that, though, I would love to just know, what is it that brought you to this moment? Like, what, what is your personal history with this work? How did you find it? Um, what is the personal draw? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, I, I started... Um, my career as a relationship psychologist and I at the time was working on a project related to empathy with newlyweds and looking at how their brains respond to different emotional states of a partner and strangers and in that study, we had included the highly sensitive person scale. And I was working with Dr. Arthur Aaron and um, his wife, Elaine Aaron, 
who is a highly sensitive person and also has written extensively on the work, uh, we all kind of got together and said, well, why don't we look at people's brain responses to uh, their partners and strangers in the context of sensitivity? And that was one of the few um, neuroimaging studies on high sensitivity and how the brain responds as a function of being a highly sensitive person. Interesting. And what did, what did you find in some of that research in regards to the differences in the brain? We found, um, so in, in that study, we discovered um, for the first time that high sensitivity is associated with brain activation in areas related to awareness, um, related to uh, meaning making, uh, integrating information from multi-sensory modalities. And we also saw for the first time that when highly sensitive people are shown some sort of positive event like their partners, face of their partner smiling, and they're told that something wonderful has happened to their partner, that they actually show more activation in reward areas of the brain that are high in dopamine. Interesting. So just because it's happening to somebody that they love, it actually shows that their brain is having these different changes in it? Exactly. So it's somebody that they love and that's happy. And another study that we published a few years after that, people were shown images of various different things that could be positive or happy or, or, or uh, threatening. Um, so the positive stimuli could be things like a bunch of people um, together smiling, having a party, um, nice, a nice looking car, various different things. And for the threatening images, they were shown things like pictures of a snake or dead animals on the road. And even if the person is not, even if, if it's not an image of a person that you know and that you're close with as a function of sensitivity, if it's some sort of happy or positive or really rewarding image, it, the highly sensitive individuals are more likely to show reward activation. Interesting. And how do you define the term highly sensitive? Um, we, um, a bunch of different researchers have defined sensitivity as an innate biological trait that's associated with greater awareness, attunement, and responsivity to environmental and social stimuli. Interesting. And is has any of the research included, like, the, if this is something that you are born with, is it like a change, a different kind of aspect to the brain, or is it something that develops through your environment or how people interact with you? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, because, you know, a lot of us wonder, like, are, you know, are we just born that way? And it is a, it, it is a biological trait. There um, is some recent research suggesting that it's heritable. Um, it was a twin study that was done by uh, uh, Dr. Plaus 
And it suggests that about 40% of the trait is heritable with the rest of it being influenced by the environment. So for example, childhood environment plays a, a tremendous role in how the trait expresses itself. Ah, interesting. And what would make, I don't know if they went deep into this, but what would make the trait express itself, meaning like what type of environment would foster that? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question because a, a, lot of, um, a lot of our work, especially the neuroimaging studies, look at childhood environments. So childhood environment, some work even suggests that prenatal environment, so what's going on with the mother during the, when she's pregnant, if she, if um, in rodents, if they're stressed out, that the, that, that, that will carry on to the child, not only in their behavior, but also in their chemistry. So they, they may show um, different density of neural receptors, but behaviorally in humans, what we've seen is that the childhood environment plays a very strong role in how sensitivity expresses itself through the life span. So in adults, uh, if they've had a poor childhood environment, they will tend to show more anxiety, depression, um, social phobias, um, burnout, um, various different things. And, and, and we also see evidence of that in children as well. And is that actually like, are you looking at the brains and there's actually changes in the brain from those experiences that might be in the womb or in childhood? Exactly. There ha- there, there's been research with animals suggesting that even prenatally, the, the mother's environment and the mother's behavior will affect the child and even the childhood environment so if, it, if it's a, a, a positive loving nurturing the child is supported by the caregiver the child is given affection and, and um, structure um, then the, the trait will tend to express itself positively so for yeah so if somebody like is in an in a family system and they let's say they were born you know highly sensitive and the and the family system honors that basically it doesn't shut try to shut that person down or have them you know tell them that they're not experiencing what they're experiencing and things of that nature um do you find that that those sensitivities like blossom as, as they come become adults. And is that something that then, cause I know I'm, the reason I'm asking this is because for many people, they share that their sensitivity is like a negative thing that they, that most of their life being sensitive hasn't worked well for them. It's been very painful. They have a number of experiences, you know, not just with parents, but like in their life where, where life didn't tell them it was okay to be sensitive. And so then, you know, in the work that I do, it's a lot of like reclaiming who we really are as adults. And so I'm wondering if someone, if they're in a general environment where they are honored for their sensitivity, does that become then like a strong suit and a positive for them in their adult life? It it does. So the trait 
does express itself positively for individuals that have had a, um, a nurturing environment, but also if they experience some sort of nurturing intervention um, as adolescents or as adults. So for example, they'll express more creativity, more empathy, um, and autonomy. Mm. Interesting, fascinating. And what do you, have you looked at anything like commonalities between the life paths of highly sensitive individuals? Like, do they all gravitate towards, you know, towards certain professions or excelling in certain things? There, you know, there hasn't been a ton of research looking at the um, life trajectories in that way. There is some evidence that the um, the the, envir- the um, work environments that tend to support highly sensitive individuals are those that are very autonomous and supportive, um, and that they can excel in in a variety of different career paths. So they can because they're able to process information more deeply and make connections across themes and express greater awareness, they can really thrive in, 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 um, in many different careers. Um, but there, there's been relatively little work on that uh, other than the work suggesting that autonomous and supportive work environments are, are, are where the highly sensitive thrive. Interesting. And when you, as a comparison to somebody who's highly sensitive, when you look at somebody who maybe isn't or doesn't meet the criteria of highly sensitive, are they experiencing, like, are they not feeling life as much? I just want to say, I know that's kind of a broad term, but do they, like, when they see some of those pictures you were talking about, does it not affect them as much? I mean, what what is the opposite? Because I identify as highly sensitive, and I know how impacted I am um, by the feelings of others or the world around me or what I experience, so I don't really have a perspective outside of that. I'm just wondering what what it looks like to not be highly sensitive or what you found in the research? Um, well, what, what, um, so what the, the opposite of being highly sensitive would be low sensitivity and being less sensitive, um, they would show less activation in, in these different areas of the brain. But what we do see that's interesting is that when we account for positive childhood if the if the individual they hasn't had a, a very positive childhood and they're shown some sort of threatening or sad image what we actually see in the brain is a decrease in reward activity so let's say you're highly sensitive and you go out and you see a car crash you're going to be more affected by that um and generally speaking if if you had um a not so great childhood, you'll be very effective. So your brain will show like a, a dip in, in happiness. But the opposite of that is that when people have had positive childhoods, they don't show that. They don't show this dip, you know, they don't show as, as a uh, steep dip in their 
reward activation. Instead, what they show is more activation in areas of the brain related to self-regulation. So somehow in childhood, they've, they've, they integrated the, the, on, a, on a, a very subtle level, the ability to regulate themselves, including their emotions. Interesting. So it's more of a, it's more of a, and you're saying that's when they come from a positive background that they've learned to self-regulate their emotions better? Exactly. And even in adulthood, we see these very subtle effects in the brain where the highly sensitive individuals who've had positive childhoods don't show this decrease. Instead, what they show is more activation in areas related to self-regulation. So on, on a physiological subtle level, their bodies are responding to something threatening or negative in the environment by, by releasing chemicals that are associated with calm, um, with, with um, and homeos and, and, their, and their systems stay physiologically more regulated in response to these threatening, challenging, stressful scenarios. This is really interesting to me because then it, you know, I'm just going on a limb here, but it's sounding like the support that you grow up around basically is your kind of tool chest for how you move, are able to adapt and move through life and regulate yourself. Like in that, like you talked about a supportive environment or a loving environment early in life really gives you, I would say more tools then, correct? Exactly. It, it, it buffers you from, basically it gives you like a buffer from negativity it, 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 on, a, on a very subtle biological level gives you the, the ability to automatically cope with life, with the stresses of life. And that's really important for the highly sensitive because they're, they're more affected by everything. Interesting. And so would you say then that, I mean, I don't know if you've done research on this, but it seems that a highly sensitive person who doesn't come from a loving, you know, caring, supportive environment might be way more susceptible to things that numb their pain, right? Like substances or addictions or things of that nature. You would think, um, if if I'm just thinking like, if, if I can't self-regulate, right? then wouldn't you look to other things if you, if you can't find that self-regulation to help manage the emotional spikes? Yeah, that, that's an interesting question. Um, I, I think that highly sensitive people do tend to try, you know, if they are not able to self-regulate, look for other ways. So I, you know, I, I'm a big uh, proponent of yoga and meditation. And I think that a lot of the people in that gravitate towards that kind of path, that spiritual path tend to be highly sensitive. But also I think a, a lot of this practices also enhance our sensitivity. So that has been my own personal experience is that I was already a highly sensitive person, but after doing years of yoga and meditating, my sensitivity has increased yeah. in, a po in a positive way um, because it, it, it gives me the tools for being resilient to stress, managing my emotions and dealing with, you know, 
past life things. Um, yeah. Meaning working through things, not necessarily in um, in a traditional modality like um, talk therapy or um, pharmaceutical medications, but working through it by doing intense yoga practices. And that has heightened my sensitivity, but also made me more resilient to the stress of everyday life. I'm a highly sensitive individual and I live in New York City. Right. right. <laughs> it's kind of like, wow, that's a lot. It's a, it's and a you lot. bring you bring up a good point because you know, things like meditation and yoga, it's like as I'm listening to you talk, I'm thinking you know, that's giving that foundation of support through those practices where you are deepening your sensitivity, but with a foundation of support, right? And a structure to how you do that. And do you feel like, does that feel like a supportive meditation practice and yoga feels supportive and kind of safe, right? And deepening the connection. Definitely. It, it provides a, um, it provides a network. It provides a a practice um, that integrates the physical, the spiritual, and the mental, and um, that I think is extremely beneficial, especially for highly sensitive individuals. There's been some other work with other types of cognitive behavioral interventions, and those were focusing on depression and um, other things like bullying and victimization and those effects were also stronger for highly sensitive individuals so they again they're more affected by everything you know so so that so it's like for better or for worse you know if something is really stressful or traumatic they're going to process it more so they're going to be more impacted by it if something is positive, they'll also be more affected by it. So they, in those studies, they showed um, effects that lasted six months out, a year out. Interesting. And what are, for anybody that's listening that is not sure about being highly sensitive or not, you talk about there are five signs um, that you're a highly sensitive person. And what are those signs? They're, well, they're, you know, these are just a few things that I came up with. Like if you're wondering if you're highly sensitive, what are some things that you might ask yourself? Like, okay, do you think about things deeply? Um, so highly sensitive people are more likely to reflect about things. They're more likely to make connections across different things. Um, they're also more likely to have a, a rich inner life and vivid dreams. Um, and and integrate information from from various different things. So they they'll show um, heightened sensitivity to sounds, to visual stimuli, to taste, to touch, um, and and, um, and they'll integrate that information um, more deeply. Um, another thing that highly sensitive people tend to do is they tend to notice subtleties in the environment. So along with this kind of heightened sensitivity to everything, they show um, increased 
awareness of, of little things in the environment. So they might hear a bird chirping when, you know, a not so sensitive person may not notice that. Or they may notice a certain arrangement in a room and things that, you know, subtleties that can be done to a room to make it more comfortable and more aesthetically pleasing, like moving the, the, the lamp to a certain position so that, the, you know, something is uh, lit a certain way. Um, and um, the, an, an example that I gave is a, 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 um, a friend of mine um, had moved a, a vase on their bookshelf. And, and it's a, you know, I, it's, a, it, it's a bookshelf that I look at, you know, every so often. And I noticed it like right away. I was like, hey, you know, that wasn't there before. And it was like a very subtle placement of a vase among many different things on the shelf. Um, so those are the kinds of things that highly sensitive people may pick up on. Um, along with that, the awareness of subtleties in the environment is also the awareness of other people's moods and their emotions. So they'll be more likely to pick up on somebody's um, sadness, somebody's happiness, and be also more affected by it because um, highly sensitive people show more activation in brain regions like the mirror neuron system. So the mirror neuron system responds to something as if it's happening to you. So let's say you move your finger, that same neuron will fire if you see somebody else moving their finger. Interesting. Um, another thing that highly sensitive people um, tend to require more of is quiet and alone time. So because they're processing information deeply, they tend to tire more quickly. It's not that they're, you know, lazy or that they just don't have the stamina. It's that important things are happening during that rest time. So we are finishing a study looking at the resting state brain of um, individuals as a function of their sensitivity. And what we're seeing is that important, it, it's not that the brain is doing nothing, it, it, it's actually very engaged in um, in information processing. So what, what we're seeing is active co-activation of regions related to depth of processing, meaning making, um, integration of memory, and physiological homeostasis. So would you say that it's more, it's just the world is occurring more internally and it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not as obvious to people. Like, let's say if you're sitting there looking at somebody or if you're in the same space as them to, who aren't highly sensitive, but there's a whole world going on for them inside. Exactly. They have really rich and deep inner lives. You know, if they're just sitting there, they're, you know, they, they may be making connections about something in the environment or they're processing information about the environment very deeply. So interesting. 
That is wonderful. And it reminds me of my husband because he, when you're sharing the part, he is sensitive as well. And he will notice things that like nobody else notices in the room or the slightest changes, or he'll like his attention will be pulled by a bird flying outside. You know what I mean? (laughs) Way away from the window. It's like, it's just this attunement. Like I love that you were use the word attune um, to things that other people miss. Like, and just an an increased like a level of hearing, a level of for sure feeling people in the room. Like so much of what you were describing was just reminding me of my husband and, and always like deep thought, right? Deep contemplation, deep thought. And, and, and he waits till he's fully contemplated something to like share it many times. That's wonderful. Yeah, you're really, yeah, you're very fortunate to have such a thoughtful husband and, and, and yeah, highly sensitive people do tend to be more contemplative and sometimes that may come across like they're speaking slowly or, you know, they're overthinking things, but they really are, they really are thinking about um, making sure that, you know, what they're saying is correct. And, and picking their words correctly. I love that. And thank you. It's, you know, we're living in a time where I feel like it's so valuable to understand people and to understand different people's experiences and their life and, you know, how they, we all process the world differently and we all have our own life experiences that are so unique. And if we can just have conversations where we can step into somebody else's shoes for a minute or, understand things a little bit deeper. I just feel like that's so worthwhile, especially at this time on this planet. And, um, and I think, you know, what you were just sharing about, you know, I mean, we live in a largely extroverted world and people are very, you know, the world can be loud sometimes. And, um, and, you know, I, I actually had a grandfather too, that was very highly sensitive and like very quiet. And, um, and just learning to dial into the people, right? And, and really be able to like understand people around us experience is so incredibly valuable. I, yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. This, this is really um, a, the time for us to grow our sensitivity. And if any, if, you know, if anything, this, you know, time of quarantine and quietness and going inward um, hopefully has brought that out in some of us. Um, and, and, you know, some of the research shows that it's, it's only about 50% heritable. So it's, it's, it's the way that, um, that we seem to be moving towards is, is, is that that is ultimately what's going to help us to pull together through these challenging situations is only by increasing our sensitivity to ourselves and to each other. Yeah, it's so beautiful. If people are listening and they want to know more about your work and more resources, can you direct them to more information on you and maybe more resources that could be helpful for them? Yeah, certainly. Um, well, I have a website and um, I have a resources page on that website where I suggest different books and 
different resources for learning more about sensitivity. Uh, I also had a book come out called The Highly Sensitive Brain, and it talks about what sensitivity is, what, what is the research on high sensitivity, what are the outcomes related to it, um, and also speculate about the future of sensitivity. So what will sensitivity look like on planet Earth? Um, in the future and possibly beyond if we make it out to other planets. Mm, I love that. And what's your website? Just so everybody can have it. My website is Bianca Acevedo, um, dot org. Wonderful. And we'll put that information in the show notes for anybody that wants to just click on that link and look at Dr. Bianca's website um, and definitely grab her book. I think this is something that everybody probably that listens to this show can relate to in one way or another, um, even if it's just opening up for you guys or whether you are already identify as highly sensitive. I feel like to be able to understand ourselves is to be able to help our environment understand as well. And so I think this is an amazing tool. And I want to ask you the four questions that we ask all of our guests before we close out. Okay. Just an opportunity to share anything that's rising to the surface for you. Um, the first question has to do with truth. And I really believe that when we come across new information that feels really aligned and truthful for us, that it causes a shift in our reality or a shift in the way that we show up to life. And so what is a truth that you've either come across in your personal life or in your work um, recently or even a while back that was really profound for you? Truth has been to be flexible, but steady. So to be, in other words, to stay on my path, but be flexible to how that happens but not necessarily to get discouraged or, um, or mold myself to something that I'm really not, but to stay on my path while being flexible about, okay, well, maybe I'll try this different, you know, approach, or maybe I'll try this different thing, but being um, true to who I am. Mm, that's beautiful. And what was it? The second question is about release, like for you to be, you know, stay on your path and be flexible and be true to who you were. What was it that you had to release when you kind of came across this way of being? Was there um, a certain limiting belief or a perception or a way of seeing yourself or the world that you felt like, huh, this doesn't really fit anymore as I move into, you know, just staying in my, on my path and being flexible on my path? Yeah, I, I, you know, I think that underlying that, um, you know, kind of obstacle to being me was the, you know, belief that if, if, um, if, if I was me, then I wouldn't be loved. That I would only be loved if I molded myself into something that the other person or the other people wanted me to be and then little by little I realized that people really you know they pick up on that and they really the, the people that 
are going to love you are the ones that love you for you and and they wouldn't have it any other way they can sense when you're shining and when you're in that state of of um connection with yourself um in that state of truth with yourself and 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 that's when that gem in us really shines and those that really truly love us for better or for worse always pick up on that they know that even if we're not always right they know when we're being true yeah i love that that's really beautifully said and the third is about experience which is what happened in your life like when you were able to release, like, I'm not going to show up and be who other people, who I think other people need me or want me to be, but instead to walk my own path. What did that feel different when you kind of started to shift your energy like that? What showed up differently in your life? Like, what was your experience? I started having more fun. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah, because, you know, when we're, when we're trying, we're, you know, we're tense. We're, we're not flexible we're you know we're we're trying we're trying but when we're just relaxed when we are who we are when we're happy when we're like you know if, you know it doesn't really matter sometimes people are going to love you or they're going to hate you even if you try to be something that they want you to be but when you relax and you're just like well you know I'm I'm just being myself and some people are going to love it some people aren't it you have fun you tend to have more fun when you're just, you know, doing things that that um, that bring you joy, that um, are aligned with who you are, and that hopefully elevate other people. It's so true. It's so true. And you can't worry about that, right? You're never, even if you're trying, you're never going to make everybody happy anyway. So may as well just, you know be yourself and have fun and enjoy. I love that answer. The fourth question and the final question is about alignment, which is when we start having more fun, when we start being more of ourselves, like there are, we start to attract more experiences or people or ways of being or things that we like to do, rituals, practices that, that feel in alignment with this like new state. So for you, what keeps you in alignment? What keeps you feeling good and having fun in life? Yeah, you know, I do like a variety of things that keep me in check, you know, that kind of like, it's like my reality check. And one of them is spending time with people that I love, like friends and family that I love and having fun, you know, from, from young to old, like with my nephew to my mom laughing um, at even hard and stressful moments. I, uh, I have a really rich yoga practice. I practice yoga and I meditate almost every day. And I try to get out in nature as much as I can and do some sort of physical activity like walk or sweat um, and, and laugh. You know, I have I have a few people in my life that's like no matter what's going on, no matter how stressful it is, somehow we always laugh at things, and 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 that I would say is like the my top therapy, just <laughs> la laughing. 
It's so true. That's I love that too. Like there are days where every once in a blue moon, I just like go in a comedy watching bin <laughs> or call friends. Like I just literally check out of life and laugh and laugh. And I mean, I think people like there's a serious therapy with laughter. Like people need to really consider the fact that just you tune out of everything else and you just laugh and immediately you feel better. It's like amazing. And I do that from time to time. So I love that you're sharing it. Um, It's so simple that sometimes people overlook the simple stuff, right? It's like, that can't really do anything. It's like, that might be therapy right there. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and laughing at ourselves. Like sometimes it's like, what was I like, you know, we just laugh, like, what was I thinking? Like, that was ridiculous. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's and so kind of like feeling shame or remorse or, you know, all these negative things, guilt, you know, we could just laugh at ourselves like, oh God, like, that was silly for like, gosh, I, I messed up. Like that was, you know, and if you hurt other people, certainly say sorry. But sometimes it's just silly, you know, it's silly like what people do or what, you know, or um, so there, there is a time and a place for that, for laughing. Although I, yeah, but, you know, and sometimes things are serious, but um, sometimes, you know, you can't laugh, you can't laugh it off all the time like if you mess up once and you and then you know you say you're sorry that's okay but if it happens again and again and it's the same thing kind of like with the Trump thing you know it's not funny anymore (laughs) no and you got to look at it at some point but but the truth is people you know I think we're a lot more generally significant and hard on ourselves than we are allowing ourselves to laugh things off um and so I think it's such an important obviously everything in balance um but but you just at the end, you just laughing and us laughing, it just changes the state of being. And there are so many ways. I think it also connects us with our childhood, you know, nature, like our inner child and the parts of us. I have a son who it will be eight soon and he just laughs all the time and rolls around on the floor and does all kinds of like funny things and pulls me in to do funny things. And all of that just, it immediately lightens you up it immediately takes away the significance and the heaviness that sometimes we as adults feel in life. And so I love that practice and I love that you shared it. And I think it's super valuable. It's probably even scientific and people should do more laughing and enjoying. And so thank you so much for being here. Thank you for sharing your very important work and for showing up in the world and being willing to do this work and to look into this. And I just think it's extremely valuable and I appreciate it. I'm going to share it with my husband too. I think he will appreciate it as well. Um, And I know everybody listening will. So thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, it was my pleasure, Shauna. And um, feel free to contact me if you have any further questions. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm Shauna Lee, and you've been listening to the Soul Frequency Show podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at the Soul Frequency. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this show. Join me next week for more powerful awakenings and positive vibes.